Snap Studios. It was a hard birth. A very hard birth. Honestly, I don't know how my wife did it. I do not. Push, push. No relief. The doctors, calm at first. Everything's going to be all right. Everything's fine. Push. Then I see the worry crease their faces. Ours. My wife looks too small, too fragile for this. I want to tell her just a little bit more. Almost there, darling. But I don't know, so I hold her hand. Push. I've never seen a more amazing display of physicality. Then she gives me a miracle. A girl. I cut the cord, take her to be clean, bring her back to her mother, pain forgotten, laughing, crying. Then this baby girl gets all quiet, looks up at me, eyes blazing. I'm in her face, and she's staring up at her father, examining me as I examine her. And in that space, I don't even realize it at the time, but I make a promise. It's holy. It's solemn. It's serious. I will do whatever I can do for you until the end of time. She looks at me like, I'm going to hold you to that. And then she puts up a holler. Today on Snap Judgment, we proudly present The Promise. Amazing stories about the oaths that bind. My name is Glenn Washington. We grabbed the brown one and ran as fast as we could from the hospital because this is Snap Judgment. We're going to kick off the program with a story from an intrepid reporter, one who would follow any lead, climb any mountain. But sometimes, the story of a lifetime just falls in your lap. Snap Judgment. A contact of mine at the courthouse called to say that something was coming in that, you know, I'd certainly want to see. That's Brian Denson, and back in 2009, he was reporting for the Oregonian newspaper in Portland. I grabbed a seat in the front row of a courtroom. I was trying to get as close as I could to a 24-year-old defendant named Nathaniel Nicholson. He went by Nathan. Nathan looked really stoic as government prosecutors played a wiretap. Nathan, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Are you okay? I'm good. What's up with the FBI? Well... Are you okay? Are you in jail? No, I'm, I'm, no, I wouldn't be calling for my cell phone if I was in jail. I've been very worried. I know, I know. Uh, so is everyone else. So what happened? Holy cow. Yeah, so, uh, well, it, it's, it's a, a really long story. This is tape of the wiretap. It's Nathan speaking to a sister star after the FBI came to his apartment on December 2008. What was going on is I was uh, uh, transporting some information. Okay. 
and that's what the whole deal was about. Whose information was it for? Uh, well, it, it was it was for uh, the Russians. Dude. But um, you know, it was nothing illegal or anything like that. There's you know, nothing if, illegal. If, if it was, I'd, I'd be in prison. This was, for me, way more than just an espionage case. I really needed to know what Nathan's role was in the, in the spy plot. So the first chance he got, Brian slipped a note to Nathan's attorney and landed an exclusive interview with Nathan. Okay, so I did talk about that then. Yeah, and I'm going to go back to that tape to, to describe that a little bit. Okay. Uh, we talked for slightly more than eight hours, all on videotape. The story starts when Nathan was 12. He was living in a townhouse with his dad and his sister Star in Burke, Virginia. It was, for the most part, an idyllic childhood. And at that point, of course, he didn't know his dad also happened to work for the CIA. He was my hero. I saw him as someone who would make sacrifices for his family. And I wanted to aspire to that. But then everything changed one day in November 1996. Nathan, his sister, and their uncle had just dropped Nathan's dad off at the airport. To fly off on what Nathan thought was a business job. A few hours later, two FBI agents knocked on the door. Yeah, I remember answering the door. What did they say? They asked if Uncle Rob was there. And in fact, they have to search the house. They're going to tear the house upside down. So the kids literally had to pack up their things and go to a motel that was rented for them by the FBI. I just remember them looking very serious and said, all right, turn on the TV. And they, they flipped it to a certain channel. And then they started saying Harold James Nicholson was, was arrested for espionage and he could be looking at life or could be looking at the death penalty. Harold James Nicholson, he went by Jim, was Nathan's dad. This is a guy who had betrayed his country on so many different levels. Jim Nicholson passed information from secret CIA cables to Russian spies all over the world. He gave up the names of approximately 300 CIA officers in training. He exposed their identities, putting their operations and lives at risk. Jim's betrayals didn't end there. He gave up the names of access agents. He gave up the names of the CIA station chief in Moscow, for heaven's sakes. He gave up a whole lot of top secret secret and other classified information to the Russians for $300,000 in pay. Nathan couldn't believe any of it. The person the FBI was talking about did not square away with the man he knew as his father. I was just so shocked. I, I couldn't even feel any emotion other than just like, what is this? You know, surely there must be like a, a huge mistake going on here. Star started uh, shouting out things like uh, she doesn't believe in God anymore and I was worried for my father's life. I was worried as, like, that was the last time I, I was ever going to see him. Nathan did see his dad again, but not until a year later. Jim was convicted in 1997, the highest-ranking CIA officer ever convicted of espionage. And he was now serving a 23-and-a-half-year sentence in a medium-security prison in Oregon. That prison became Nathan's second home. He spent so many hours sitting knee-to-knee with his dad. He, he expressed a lot of guilt. What I did was selfish. I should have never done that because you kids are now suffering because of it. He felt incredibly embarrassed. It's just very, very remorseful and always very humbled whenever we would come to visit him. 
Nathan was 22 years old. He was going to visit his father. And he was going to go in and buy his father a jalapeno cheeseburger and a Coke. They were going to talk about their favorite show, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Now, I don't think he was expecting anything unusual that day. When his father said, I know you kids are, are having some tough times with finances, and there's a way for me to, um, to help out with that, and that I would be the go-to guy to make all this happen. He was saying, um, I want you to find out where some Russian consulates are. Nathan didn't really give it a whole lot of thought. So he went home, did a little internet research, and found a Russian consulate in San Francisco. I relayed that to him, of course, and says, all right. Just verbally, though. All right. Jim sort of nodded along, and he said, I'd like for you to drive down to San Francisco, and I would like for you to carry some messages that I'm going to prepare for you, and I want you to ask for the director of security. And he said, um, what I'm hoping for is that they will give you some, some money. Now, Jim would have known that the Russians were holding what might be called a pension for him in Moscow. It's been estimated at about a million dollars and that Nathan could maybe make some early withdrawals from this account. But it, it's dangerous. What did you say? Well, I, I let Dad know that whatever he needed done, I would do it. And he never asked his dad, what do you mean it's dangerous? <laughs> Then when his father was talking about cover stories and, you know, pretending to be an architect just in case the FBI or someone should stop you, this should have been sending warning flags, but... I was really appealed to the adventure of what it sounded like. And he explained to me that while I could tell Jeremy and Star, it might be best not to, just because the less explaining, the, the easier things would go. I'll have to say this. Nathan was extremely vulnerable. He'd been through a terrible parachuting accident that had called him from the army. He was depressed, he had been suicidal, and he was, you know, a Pizza Hut delivery man at night. It was not the exciting life that he had imagined for himself. I started the drive around midnight or so, got to a rest stop, threw on uh, my suit. Dad told me to present myself in a, a nice fashion. And early the next morning, Nathan walked into the Russian consulate. He was carrying a couple messages and a photo of him with his dad. In fact, he felt pretty confident that the Russians would treat him very well. At the receptionist's desk, he asked to speak to the director of security. A man did come out and drew Nathan back into the bowels of this consulate into a surveillance-proof room. He was very suspicious of me. It was, uh, he starts uh, questioning me. What did he ask you? Uh, he says, well, tell me about yourself. Where were you born? He tried to trip me up by saying, um, tell me about your brothers. And I say, well, no, I only have one brother and one sister. I want to let you know that we don't trust you right now. <laughs> we have no idea who you are. Ultimately, the director of security turned Nathan away. I remember driving back very discouraged. Well, why did I waste this trip? Informed Dad uh, on the next visit as to all that happened. Well, he's very concerned about my safety. Did they hurt you? And I say, no, they... <laughs> they didn't even touch a hand on me other than shaking my hand. And you can almost hear the gears turning in his, his head as to what he's thinking up there. At this point, Jim undoubtedly knew the Russians were vetting Nathan and that they were pouring over his notes to the Russians. He wasn't too happy. And he says, all right, uh, I want you to go back in two weeks. So with his marching orders, Nathan drove back down to the Russian consulate in San Francisco. He was a little nervous, unsure what to expect. 
He asked for the director of security again. He uh, was very apologetic for, for being so harsh the first time. We're very sorry for the way we treated you, for not believing you. We fully trust you now. Just about gave me a bear hug almost, <laughs> it seemed like. And then, to Nathan's great surprise, he spilled out $5,000 out of a bag in $100 bills. But there was a catch, and one that Nathan didn't fully grasp at the time. The Russians wanted something in exchange for this money. He gave me uh, specific instructions as to where I was going to meet for the next meeting. Told him that it was now unsafe to be visiting the Russian consulate in San Francisco and was told to go to Mexico City and given a date. The Russians had a list of questions for Jim, and now they had Nathan to carry those answers back and forth. The Russians wanted to know. Was Dad suspicious of being tailed in Malaysia? If he was suspicious, what were his reasonings behind that? They were curious as to who gave him the lie detector test, if he noticed anything odd, or basically it seemed like, why did you screw up type of questions. And there is a little bit of truth to that. The Russians were trying to find out where they went wrong, but what they were trying to do is find out what Russian spy among them fingered Jim. (laughs) Nathan is driving home from that visit, feeling like he's on cloud nine, and he is very excited to tell his father, and uh, just about that time the phone rings. Hello? This call is from... This is Dad Car Daddy. An inmate at a federal... Hey, hey Bob. Hey, Nate. I thought I'd call you and see what kind of hours you're keeping these days. Pretty pretty much the same, I guess. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, I'm on the road heading back now. Oh, are you? Okay, okay. Did everything go okay? Yeah, everything went uh, real well. Oh, excellent. Um, excellent. Got a uh, uh, sale for about uh, five, 5 k Okay, uh-huh. And uh, even thinking of making a trip over to uh, Mexico come December. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, so business is picking up, huh? Yeah, yeah, sure is. Well, I'm, yeah. uh, I'm just tickled to talk to you about it. Um, I'll be calling you again then, uh, tomorrow maybe after church or something like that. Sounds great. Okay, you guy, you you have a safe journey and uh, get some sleep to, uh, this afternoon. I guess you'll be sleeping. <laughs> okay, Pa. All right, buddy. You take care, and I love you. Have you got fog down there? For the next year and a half, Nathan crisscrossed the globe on the Russians' orders. The first two times he went to Mexico City, the next to Lima, Peru. Each time he met with a Russian handler named George. Nathan would hand over his dad's answers, written on prison napkins. George would give him $10,000, stuffed in a paper bag. At the end of each meeting, he'd get a list of more questions for his dad and the location of his next assignment. I'm feeling great. It's like, wow, this is finally successful. My faith in my father was, was panning out. And dad told me he was proud of me. He said he wished some of the people in the CIA that he had trained were as uh, cooperative or as successful. (laughs) And so that encouraged me. It made me feel like a sense of pride. So at this point, they have now gotten $5,000 in San Francisco, $20,000 in Mexico City, another $10,000 in Peru. So we have $35,000 already and the promise of much more. Nathan moved to a nicer apartment, got a better car. But he wasn't pocketing all the money. 
He funneled some of it to his brother and his sister, too. Of course, they didn't know it was from the Russians. I felt kind of like a, I don't know, undercover Santa Claus, you know, because I was able to see uh, my brother and sister be able to afford their expenses now. I started, was able to move up to Portland and get a job up here. It was after the trip to Lima, Peru, when Nathan was stopped in the airport in Houston, that he really began to feel that what he was doing couldn't possibly be on the up and up any longer. I started becoming very uh, suspicious of anyone around me. I was getting very nervous before I would go on these trips. And And then George signaled Nathan to meet him in Cyprus in December 2008. Nathan was feeling especially anxious about this trip. And he brought up the subject on a a couple of occasions with his dad. Maybe this should should be the end of this. And dad would say, you know, you're you're this brave guy that, that goes off and does these things. And I'm like, yeah, that's... All right, all right, that fires me up. Let's let's do this. Something in the back of my head said, you know, trust that dad knows what he's doing. And maybe I, I was selfish, I don't know. And wanted all the glory for myself. I It felt glorious. No, it did. It did. And I don't know if that's what kept me going or, or subconsciously going. I don't know. Ultimately, Jim's motivations were very clear. He was securing his future in Russia, where he planned to move after serving his prison term. He was looking at maybe another eight years. So throughout this time, you'll see from the the tapes that Jim is giving him fatherly love in triplicate and grooming him like any garden variety asset he would have worked overseas. But this was his own son, and I don't think Jim felt any shame about it. Hello. Did you read that uh, that psalm that I mentioned? I sure did. You're, you're really good at reciting uh, passages there. Oh, no. I, I was just amazed at how that just lined up with what you, you had just done. You know, I was just amazed. I said, wow, thanks, Lord. You know, yeah, I, I know he's got his hand on you, you know, because he knows I worry about you all the time. And, <laughs> and uh, he just wants to reassure me all the time that he's got you. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's no, for that, sure. That was good. That was real good. All right, Ray, well, super, hon. Well, listen, you just have a, a good week this week, okay? No, I just want you to know I love you. And, uh, I love you too, Bob. I got you in my prayers, of course, all the time. And, uh, and we're going to we're gonna have a, a good time here. So uh, just uh, just keep, uh, keep plugging along and make me really proud, son. You're doing a great job. Nathan could not resist going to Cyprus. But on his way back to the States, he was stopped by a customs officer and questioned for a very long time. Nathan managed to stay calm, talked his way out of it, and made it home. I was feeling pretty good that I had actually made it past security at that time and thought I could relax a little bit. I woke up to a loud pounding on the door. Oh, is that right? Oh, yeah. I thought they were going to break it down there. <laughs> Peeked out the, the eye hole, saw that there was two gentlemen, and I'm... I knew who they were at that point in time. I started flashing back to what I remembered when I was 12. They looked exactly like uh, what I remembered. So I opened up the the door, let them in, and they introduced themselves that they're FBI agents. My world came unglued at that time. I asked them, am I going to be arrested right now? They say, well, not right now, you're not. 
After being grilled for eight hours, the first person Nathan called was his sister Star. She'd also been visited by the FBI. They sent two mean ladies here. Two mean ladies? Oh, no. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, sis, I'm sorry. Yeah. But, so uh, you're good? and uh, You're fine and everything's going to be okay? No, I'm doing all right. Doing all right. You know, I'm just uh, a little concerned about Christmas now because I was planning on using that money for, for some presents. They took but, your uh, Christmas money? Well, yeah, they, because the information I gave uh, the Russians was um, worth $10,000. Oh, dude. Yeah. And I was planning on giving uh, you and Jeremy uh, some of that money. Oh, dude, no, you know, like, no, like, no. Like the past years. and. Uh, that was you? Yep. Dude, you're not supposed to do that. But, uh... Thank you. Don't think uh, I don't appreciate <laughs> it. But, 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 you know, seriously, it just sounds kind of like what Daddy did. The same day that Nathan was interrogated, two other FBI agents took Jim out of his cell and sat him down. Jim had multiple chances to fall on his sword and save his kid. He could have taken full responsibility and cut a deal with the government to go easy on Nathan. But he indignantly said, I don't want to talk anymore, and invoked his right to counsel. 43 days later, Nathan was indicted for conspiracy to act as an agent of a foreign government and for money laundering. So when they came to arrest me, I I knew exactly what they were there for. And I had a mix of emotions. I, I didn't know if I felt relief or if my life was falling apart. <laughs> but now Nathan had three choices. He could plead guilty and go to prison for a long period. He could cut a plea deal and get less time. Or there was a door number three, and that was to become a cooperating witness against his own father. It was a very lonely road that I was on because it felt like, you know, here's my hero. He was trying to help me out. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, at, at least. And I had to essentially crucify him. Nathan decided to cooperate with the government, essentially turning on his dad. But the judge had to ask him, do you realize that by pleading guilty here, you'll likely be asked to confront your father? Are you indeed ready to do that? And his answer was yes, but it was a very pained yes. It, it did take a lot of uh, soul-searching, as you, as you put it. But it was ultimately the right thing to do. I wanted to take full responsibility for my actions, try to make amends for it. In a way, Nathan's decision forced his father's hand. After holding out for months, Jim finally cut a plea deal with the government. Jim did something extraordinary at sentencing. He didn't apologize to the U.S. government. In fact, he apologized for the trouble that his assistance brought the Russian government. This did not sit well with the district judge, Anna Brown, who sentenced him. She said, your time going forward is not going to be easy time. Jim was sentenced to the Supermax in Florence, Colorado, where the worst of the worst go in the U.S. federal system. And since his conviction, Jim has not been able to speak to Nathan or communicate with him in any way. In a sense, that's sort of been like a, kind of like a death. Looking back at the letters you got from your dad, with, with the hindsight you've obviously gained in all this time. 
Right. Uh, what do you make of lines like, you know, you've been brave enough to step into this new world, you're like me. To be honest, there, there's still part of me that appreciates those words even now. But I, what troubles me is the very real possibility that it was used for some sort of manipulation. Uh, but I, I don't know. I still have all these memories about when I was a kid, and and I still wrestle with the idea that he may or may not have manipulated me. But you know, I, I do still very much love him, and I I still appreciate those words. I guess they sit differently a little bit now. Snappers, we've got a strange addendum to this story. You see, I know Jim Nicholson, who was the subject of this story. He was a CIA station chief in Malaysia when I was there as a junior, junior, junior foreign service officer. We pretended that he was my boss. And at the time, to say that I looked up to him would be the understatement of the decade. He was so cool, so confident. When he actually turned his full attention to you, it was like you felt better about yourself. When he initially left Malaysia, I lived in his house, discovered through the grapevine that we were dating some of the same women, and I heard that he had a tough re-entry back to the United States. I had no idea how tough. To learn more about the father-son spy plot, Grab a copy of Brian Denson's book, The Spy's Son. We'll have a link to that at snapjudgment.org. The original sound design for that piece was by Renzo Gorio. It was produced by Nancy Lopez. Now, when Snap Judgment returns, we've got a new take on a free meal. And someone forgets what you should never, ever forget. When Snap Judgment, the promise episode continues. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Promise episode. Today, we're exploring stories of commitment and consequence. Listeners, please note, this is a real story that touches on the topic of suicide, Please take care in listening. We are transporting you now to Snap Judgment Live. Put your hands together for Pia Glenn. (laughs) 
I get home from school, walk in the door, and immediately see the letter addressed to me from NYU. I drop my backpack damn straight. I drop my backpack, tear it open, and read out loud that I've been accepted. Early decision, scholarship, done deal. My mother stands next to me as I read it, and she high-fives me, just a little too hard. But we're excited, and I'm so happy. See, I had put all my college application eggs in that one basket, and I was in. I float through that evening on a college-bound cloud and eventually go to sleep. I wake up in the middle of the night, and I see my mother standing over my bed, but I don't see the knife in her hand until she's bringing it down onto my neck. I feel the pressure from the blade on my skin, but I don't say anything and I don't scream. I have to gauge her lucidity. See, my mother's often violent toward me during her manic or psychotic episodes brought on by bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. I scan her face for a trace of awareness and I'm about to ask if she knows where she is when she lifts the knife and backs out of the room. The high five from earlier flashes across my mind. It was just a little too hard. She's gone off her medication again. It's my job to monitor her meds and to pay attention to when mommy laughs too loud or cries too long or high fives me just a little too hard and I messed up. I get out of bed to check on my brother and disarm my mother and get the phone to call 911 and suddenly two policemen burst into my room. Have you taken any pills? The cops sandwich me in, physically stopping me from leaving the room, and they're shouting, tell us what you've taken, tell us what you've taken. The the cops are here for me. My mother called the police on me. They tell me that yes, she had called them and told them I was threatening to kill myself. What? No, I absolutely am not. Please, she's not well. I have to go downstairs. I have to check on my brother. The cops give me a quick pat down and the three of us hustle down the stairs. And there, I see my 11-year-old brother's little face. Seeing him upright and breathing brings some relief. So I turn back to the cops, trying to convince them that she's the dangerous one, not me. My mother's yelling over me, our voices louder and louder, like a terrible duet. And the cops are just staring. Suddenly, my mother produces a pile of tattered papers that look vaguely familiar. She shoves them in the cops' faces, and time stops. As I recognize my own anguished handwriting... I watch the cops reading little snatches of my words being used as evidence of my alleged suicide threat. No, 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 you don't understand. When my mother's depressed, she tells me not to talk to her. She tells me to write down anything that I have to say to her. That's why I wrote those letters. I I might have been sad because my mother wouldn't talk to me, but please, she's the one who needs help, not me. They're dragging me along, but I will not leave my brother with her. And just when I'm about to stretch myself out across the doorway like a cartoon cat, my mother picks up the guitar she never played and smashes it into the glass top of the coffee table, shattering it. She stands over her mess, huffing and puffing, and the cops finally think maybe they should take her in too. I call the understanding neighbor who sometimes looks after my brother at times like this, and The cops debate calling a second ambulance, but then it's decided that we'll just all ride together. For the whole ride, I stare at my mother, staring into space, and I wonder how I can fix this. It's my job to fix this. 
When we get to the ER, I'm still considered the threat, and she's a question mark in their minds. But legally, having just turned 17, I'm a minor and she's my mother, and she puts on enough of a show of sanity to sign the paperwork to have me committed. We sit side by side on plastic molded seats in the psychiatric ER in the middle of the night. Mom, do you know where you are? She stares straight ahead. Mom, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry that this is all happening. She turns to me and says, without even a hint of recognition in her, vi- in her face, what do you mean? What's happening? I turn my face so she won't see me cry. My mother gets up and starts pacing in the waiting area. Pacing is bad. I try to alert the staff, but she lunges at a passing nurse, getting off one clean punch to her head before being tackled to the ground, injected with straight Haldol, and dragged off to be admitted. Well, now they believe me about my mother. I'm begging for someone to believe that I don't need to be hospitalized. And I'm aware that as the hours pass and my begging gets more and more emphatic, I only look more and more unhinged. And I'm still in my pajamas because the police wouldn't let me change. A full day comes and goes, till finally I'm granted an audience with the head doctor. I plead my case to him in a tiny exam room and (laughs) crying here and there as I talk, but when he smiles warmly and says he believes me, I start to sob with relief and the full force of two sleepless nights' exhaustion. The doctor continues. One thing, though. If you're okay, then why are you crying? He's so smug. But I try to answer him anyway. I'm crying because I just watched my mother attack a nurse and, and get sedated on the floor, and she tried to kill me. I think last night or the night before, I did a... He just gets up and walks out of the room. A little medivan transports me to the facility. They confiscate my shoelaces and the drawstring from my funky pajama bottoms and offer me donated clothes that are way too small. I shower with an orderly watching and eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in the little cafeteria by myself. And I just wish I could call my brother and check on him. A fellow patient with a full cast on his arm tries to say hi, and I try to hide my fear. He has that same manic look in his eyes as my mom. There's a skeletal girl with a feeding tube in her nose because she won't eat. I cling to my little corner in the therapy room, looking out the closet at the window. On day three, a therapist begins a group session by asking four volunteers to share. And the scruffy boy with the wild eyes and the cast raises his hand. He says, I'll start. And he points sharply at me and he says, why is she here? And the other girl says, yeah, yeah, she shouldn't be here. Send her home. There are about 12 of us in the room and everyone chimes in and the boy with the cast is banging it on the table, and they're saying, send her home, send her home. And then he starts hitting himself in the head with the cast, hard. And he's like, yeah, I'm crazy. This is crazy. She's not crazy. Send her home. I am watching these kids, these wonderful and warm and compassionate and in this moment logical kids sticking up for me saying what I had been begging adult medical professionals to say for days. The next day, I'm released. 
my father picks me up and at this point in my life I hadn't seen much of him I can tell he doesn't really believe me when I tell him what happened I go from staying at my dad's to staying at a friend's and when my mom is released from the hospital she gets my brother from where he'd been staying when I finally get back home my mother greets me with a smile on her face and a big mylar balloon bouquet as if I'd been on a pleasure cruise I know, she doesn't remember her episodes, but there's always evidence of them in what's missing or broken, so I look around to use my usual cleanup. The time she broke all the glasses in the kitchen, I just went to the store and bought plastic cups, or I just throw away whatever she lit on fire and it's never spoken of again. But this time was different, because she got home before me. My brother and the helpful neighbor had swept up the glass and thrown out the guitar and My mother's mess was cleaned up without me. See, what was broken this time was my belief that my mother could ever really love me. What was missing this time was my ability to go back to business as usual. That fall, when I pack my things to go live in the dorms at NYU, I'm full of conflict. I hope that my mother won't be as violent to my little brother as she was to me. And she hadn't so far, but... Anything can happen with her. The day I leave for school, I stand in front of the house with my brother. And I say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I'm leaving you, but I have to go. He's not nearly as emotional as I am, I'm a mess. It was a passing of the torch of caring for our mom. And in the years to come, he stepped up and did just that. My mother died six weeks ago. And at the funeral, I almost fell over at the sight of her body in the casket. It was my little brother, now a married father of two, who held me up when I couldn't take another step forward. At our mother's funeral, my brother took care of me the way I had taken care of him, the way we both took care of her. The amazing Broadway actress, singer, dancer, storyteller extraordinaire, Pia Glenn. The original score for that piece, composed by Alex Mandel, performed live by Alex and the Snap Judgment players, Tim Frick and David Brand. When Snap Judgment returns, we're going where no one has ever been before. When the promised episode continues, stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment. My name is Glenn Washington. Our next story comes to us from our friends over at The Truth, a podcast of amazing fictional tales. It's about one of those days when you have one of those days that changes everything forever. Just tell me what you want. Okay, just tell me. Are you hungry? 
Are you wet? Oh, no, I can't. I'm babysitting my sister's kid. A bummer. Well, we'll be here pretty late, I think. What time is she coming home? Monday, so it's a whole weekend of fun. Ah, how's it going? Not great. You want some grown-up company? Mm. Be over there in half an hour. No, no, I'm just, I'm not feeling that great. I'll bring pizza. Some wine? A couple bottles? Yeah, no, I just, I, I need to stick here with the kid. The thing kid. is, I've always had this babysitter fantasy. <sighs> Very tempting. It's done. I'm on my way. Oh, ow. I'll see you in half an hour. No, really, seriously, I'm not. I'm not up for it. I'm you not... know, you've become a very not fun person <laughs> recently. Do you know that? I don't feel good. I'm gonna. I gotta go. I'm gonna hang up. Call me if you change your mind. Okay. What's wrong? What's wrong? Are you sleepy? Do you want to go to bed? Okay, hey, you, you, you are my sunshine, my only sunshine, you make me happy. Oh, God. Oh, 
Listen to me. I'm scared. Anne, listen to me. Listen. Don't panic. You need to remember what I'm telling you. Listen to the baby. Listen. Forget. Baby. You have to get your phone and call for help. I need to call. While there's still time. Yeah. The phone. It's on the table. Yeah. It's, it's, but be careful. It's right there. Say it. Uh, uh, yeah, that's good. That's enough for now, huh? She needs a break. She know I'm here. She knows. She's taking everything in. Hi, beautiful. 
everyone sending their love. Uh, we set up a GoFundMe to help you with your medical bills. Almost 4000 raised already, so... Is she okay? She looks tired. You have to speak slowly or she loses some of the words. Okay. Um, listen, Anne, um, I, I just wanted to say that no matter what, um, B what's that? B what do you need, beautiful? She wants to hold the baby. Oh boy! Here you go. Up, up, up. She really loves that baby. Thank you, Jonathan Mitchell, for lending us your radio play. Snappus, that story was written by Lewis Kornfeld and produced by Jonathan Mitchell. The part of Anne was played by Anne Carr, Adam was played by Lewis Kornfeld, and Amy Warren was the sister. This piece was commissioned by the Sarah Awards from Sarah Lawrence College. And for more radio fiction magic, you can visit thesarahawards.com and thetruthpodcast.com. It's about that time, and I understand where you're coming from. Glenn, we need more Snap Storytelling. Yes, I know this, and I've got the solution right here. Hours of Snap to get you through what you do. It's all there on the Snap Judgment Podcast. Subscribe right now at snapjudgment.org. See what your favorite Snappers look like. Hit Snap Judgment on Facebook. Like us on Twitter. Snap is produced by the team that if you ask them no questions, they will tell you no lies. Show some love for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Pat, not a slave to fashion, Miss C. Miller. Anna, can do Sussman. Nancy, won't do Lopez. Davey, already did Kim. Joe, the maestro Rosenberg. Resident linguist, Renzo Gorio. Our Get Fresh crew, Eliza Smith. Anna Adlerstein, Matt Ducat, Leon Morimoto. Jasmine, turn the radio down, Aguilera. And this, this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, if you whisper a promise in someone's ear and have them whisper a promise in the next person's ear and so on and so on around the circle and when the last person promises, they will forever be a toad on an auxiliary hose, you would still... Not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is PRX. <laughs> <laughs>